Welcome. It is once again Professor Hamby here for the Literature Department's participation in the Miskatonic University Remote Education Program, Literature 209, Graphical Lit and Society and History, aka the Comics Course. I am here as always with my loyal TA Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. I'm out of it because I just got up from my post-lunch sleep cycle. Uh, I don't know why Rowan is out of it. It's been a long week. I can understand that. But we have chocolate, we have mocha, we have water, we will survive. Uh, now, there was supposed to be a midweek uh, Feckin' Idgets episode. We recorded it. I hit save. I did not hit the confirmation box. I did that like four days later. So, I have it saved, ready to go. Um, it's going to go out this week instead of a new episode. Unless we put out two midweeks this week, because what the heck. Um... There will be some time travel in it, because I mentioned this episode we're about to do is upcoming, so adjust on the fly, folks. If you can't do that, you probably should fail the course and go get a job that involves asking people if they want to supersize. If it is your job to ask people if they want to supersize, I'm sorry, our job market sucks. A mm -hmm. um, little bit of news. I've had a people bunch of people asking me about Thomas Thomas I got with the Dean harassed him again he got me the SoundCloud account uh, and some people have asked me why have I called him both Thomas and Thomas his actual name is Thomas if anybody by the way wants to send cards for his family or well wishes you can send them to the Miskatonic University student registrar office uh, to Thomas or Thomas he's lived here a long time and goes by Thomas casually but to Thomas Reinhardt courtesy of Miskatonic University Student Register Office. Uh, the Dean sound gave me the SoundCloud account. It is Color of Emptiness. So that is soundcloud.com forward slash color, C-O-L-O-U-R, like the British spelling, of emptiness. All one word. So I went on earlier and I'm going to play for you the tr first track he uploaded. Uh, he hasn't uploaded a second track yet. It's kind of interesting, though. So we're going to play that right now, and it's entitled The End of Sleep. Okay. I have given no parts okay, and hold the space between stars and one eye. I can hear goals in the background. He must be recording it on the beach in Antarctica. <laughs> yeah, because there's definitely beaches. Now, I have a couple thoughts as I listen to this. You know, I, I have a couple of concerns. One, I didn't know he liked techno music or house music. I mean, I feel like we missed opportunities to talk about this. So, Thomas, if you're listening, I look forward to you coming home so we can talk about music some more. Because I love house music. And two, your throat sounds a little rough. I mean, you always had a deep voice. Uh, but I'm really worried about that cold air in your throat. So, um, you know. Anyway, if you want to hear the whole track for yourself, you can go over to SoundCloud, Color of Emptiness. I think it's interesting. He's doing, you know, a little something with poetry and, you know, using the ambient sounds. You know, I think it's an interesting little experiment on his part. And I'm glad he's keeping himself occupied. Yeah. Right? Interesting. Yeah. So, uh, let's jump in to talking about My Hero Academia versus Legion of Superheroes. Now... I do want to welcome our very special guest. Um, the It's a time traveler. They're from the future. It's the ghost of Brian Michael Bendis. Now, I do have to read a legal disclaimer from the Miskatonic University Legal Department. Uh, they wanted me to remind everybody in the class that although the summoning was done properly and by named invocation... Through the Graphonomicon. Um, you know, spirits are tricky things. And technically, all we know is that this is the ghost of a Brian Michael Bendis from the future. Not necessarily by definition the comic book. But come on, clearly. I mean, how many Brian Michael Bendises can there be? Translation, don't sue us. Look, this is a requirement from the legal department. I have full faith in our guest. Brian Michael Bendis, can I trust you? Yes, clearly, I can. That's that's him responding. Okay. He's going to tap uh, twice for yes, once for no. 
This was our prearrangement. Okay. Uh, I thought about having the Ouija board, but a thing happened. I left the window open, squirrels came in, I woke up, my hair was braided again. Um, the squirrels have issues, and the Ouija board is gone. So, if you see any ghost squirrels tonight, that's what happened. At least the squirrels like you, even if the students don't. I'm not sure the squirrels like me. I think they just see my chestnut golden hair and, you know, they just can't help themselves. <laughs> That's why I wear, I used to wear a cap when I went outside to avoid being flocked um, by squirrels and other forms of flying rodentia. So, My Hero Academia, drawn and written by Kohei Horikoshi. Uh, he had, this is not his first work. He'd done some other work. But they were relatively minor compared to My Hero Academia. It was published, serialized, and shown in Jump, uh, and then reprinted in the U.S., I believe, by Viz. And this has been a monstrous success in the U.S. Mm -hmm. It's also a little bit of an anomaly in the sense that it is definitely a manga series. It uses a number of Western superhero tropes. And one of the main characters, All Might, in fact, has a lot of Americanisms about him. He names a bunch of super moves after U.S. states. Uh, and Horikoshi has said that among his influences are Western superhero comics, especially Marvel, and that he loves Marvel comics. And you can see that influence. Marvel is famous for characters that may all be heroes, but don't get along all the time and have very human foibles. And you definitely see that in My Hero Academia. So My Hero Academia is essentially by a Japanese comic artist. Oh, and somebody else asked me, why do I sometimes say manga and then say comics after it? I say it because although I think it's okay to generalize manga, meaning Japanese comics, and it's okay to kind of generalize a certain style and collection of uh, creative elements like uh, certain kinds of stories. I think it's also important to remember that it does not define Japanese comics, that there are a lot of Japanese comics that don't fit the mold of what we think of as quote unquote manga, but they are manga, they're comics made in Japan. So anyway, um, we have My Hero Academia, and it is an effort by a Japanese comics creator to basically interpret Western superhero comics, specifically the big group of superheroes. And then we have Legion of Superheroes, which is a relaunch of a longtime franchise uh, call, called Legion of Superheroes by Brian Michael Bendis. It goes back to the golden age of, golden age? At least silver age of comics. I'd have to check for the exact publication date off the top of my head and it doesn't matter for this. Um, And I, I don't want to say that I'm going to say one is better than the other, but one is definitely better than the other. And so I want to compare and contrast and make that a meaningful statement. Mm -hmm. And I think we can objectively say that one is better than the other in part because we can look at sales figures. Mm -hmm. Now, sales aren't everything. You know, there, there are things that have sold a lot of copies and are bad, but they're usually fads. When things sell for a long time, as My Hero Academia has, you can look at sales charts, and My Hero Academia is often topping three, four, or five categories at a time. Uh, certainly the manga ones and non-manga ones. Um, for trade collections as well as individual issues sometimes. When it sells for a very long time, you have to say there's something more than a fad there. And I think that's certainly true here. Now, I know you like My Hero Academia, but you're primarily familiar with the anime, right? Mm hmm Now, you've also watched the movies, and My Hero Academia has done one thing interesting content-wise, in that uh, in order to have fresh content while the show's been in production, between some of the seasons of the shows, they've done movies mm -hmm. with new stories that are not from the manga. But otherwise, the show follows exactly along the manga. Mm-hmm. So, how did you get into My Hero Academia, and what do you find appealing about it? I, I first I first heard about it briefly, but wasn't super interested until a close friend of mine really liked it and recommended it to me. So, he really liked it, so I was like, I'll give it a try. He normally has good taste. So, I watched it. At first, I was kind of like, 
Deku's really whiny. But right. then I really got into it as the more superhero stuff came in, and I really enjoyed it. Okay. I really liked how action-packed it was, but still had emotion to it. Yeah. So we're going to compare and contrast the first issues. Now, I think it could be potentially useful to look, to look at the whole series, but I think we really can encapsulate the issues that these two launches have. Uh, Legion of Superheroes, which is rebooting and relaunching a classic franchise, and a whole new franchise, because there's... Now Vigilantes, and I can easily see more titles branching off My Hero Academia. So we're going to get in, and we're going to first go through what's good and bad in the first issue of My Hero Academia, and then we're going to go through Legion of Superheroes to compare and contrast that. So we don't have a cover, really, for My Hero Academia. The American version does have a cover, but the truth is that it was serialized in Shonen Jump, and by the time it was published in America, the cover didn't matter. The hype was huge. Yeah. And people were going to pick it up regardless of cover. So that's not a really strong point of comparison. Um, Horikoshi says on the inside, with a weird little graphic of a hand coming out of a foot, he says, this is my third series to be collected into graphic novels. Forgive me if it sounds reckless, but the thing I prioritize most from drawing manga is creating something I can enjoy. This one might not remain popular, but for now, I'll be happy if everybody finds it as fun as I do. Well, people have found it fun. Yeah, um, it's really and loved fun. It. Now, one of the things I want to dismiss here is I have heard a lot of Western comic book creators, and Western comics are so heavily focused on superheroes that they say, oh, well, you know, kids just don't want to read superheroes these days. Well, here's a Japanese comic creator who loves Western superheroes and has created a comic that really follows Western superhero tropes and is super popular among the same age group that Marvel and DC are trying to figure out why aren't buying their comics. So I'm calling BS. <laughs> so story and art by Kohi. Hirokoshi, translation, English adaptation by Caleb Cook. He's a great translator. He's done a lot of stuff for Viz and other entities. Um, and we get right into the first issue, which is Izuka Midoriya's origin. And when we first enter the story, we see him as a tiny kid. Uh, Izuka Midoriya is going to be our, our main character, and he's the first person whose face we see. And he's obviously scared, he's tiny, he's weak, and he's standing up to defend another kid. And then there's this big guy who has like this explosion coming out of his hand that says, Oh, the quirkless wonder thinks he can play hero, huh? And we have a name, Deku. And the overtech says, people are not born equal. That's the hard truth I learned at age four. So we have a bunch of stuff set up here automatically. We have a big intimidating character. We see in the background pe other people with powers, a guy with bat wings, somebody who can extend their hands super long. We see somebody who apparently doesn't or is super weak on some level. And the overtext of they're not all born equal. So we have the main character, we have their name, we have that they're brave, we have a world with powers, and, we'll, and we see people beating the kid up. And we have all this in one page, just boom, boom, boom. Um, and I want to say about the art, one of the things I like about Horikoshi's art is that he does not leave white space unnecessarily. When he uses white space, he, there's a purpose behind it. He loves filling in backgrounds, mm -hmm. and I like that in his art. Yeah. And he uses a lot of shading. So even though we're in grayscale here, the fire explosion, you can see that sort of texture to the fire that fire has. It doesn't feel like it's in black and white. Right. And then Deku says, that was my first and last setback. And we now see him as an older teenager, and he's in a crowd. We see somebody in some sort of superhero outfit above the, flying above the crowd or jumping. And he's looking at a giant villain. And then now we see a page with literally a giant. Somebody who's like 50, 60 foot tall. Uh, presumably the villain. Heroes are attacking them. Police are trying to keep people away from them, while civilians hold up cell phones to take pictures, probably post them on social media, all very realistic. Mm -hmm. And then we get some detailed information, but we've already got the essentials. We find out that it began in Kiki City, China. A bioluminescent baby was born. After that, people started having powers. They were called quirks. 
um, but they're, they vary. And we find out in this issue that Izuku Midoriya, often called Deku, which involves a Japanese pun uh, to basically call him stupid, is quirkless. He's one of the few people in the world without quirks. It happens to a small percentage of the population, and he's one of them. But a lot of quirks are weak anyway, and not very good for, say, superheroics. So we see this giant villain, he's being fought by monsters. Uh, we get, you know, some implications of this world where heroes work professionally with the government and police to stop bad guys. Because, of course, some people with powers are going to try to use them for self-interest. And... We get a little bit of fan service as Mountain Lady is introduced and she bends over and people get really good pictures of her buttocks. There's not a whole lot of fan service in the series, though. Mm -hmm. um, there's, you know, some tight outfits and some jokes made about some female characters, um, but it's pretty light. I mean, honestly, at a book aimed for teenage boys, it's almost non-existent. Yeah. Um... You, if when a fan service scene comes up, you go, Oh, we haven't seen that in a while. Okay. Right. So, as this goes on, we get some quick information about how heroes earn their living financially. And we see Deku in school. They are filling out papers about what school they want to go to. And we see that loud kid with the explosions from the beginning again. We find out that he is a classmate of Deku's. His name is Katsuki Bakugo. He's also age 14, and his goal is to go to Hero Academia, the premier school for people that want to become government-employed superheroes, and he wants to surpass All Might, who is kind of the Superman of this world. Mm -hmm. um, he is big, he's tough, he's strong, he doesn't fly, but he can jump tremendous distances, like the original Superman could. The original Superman did not fly, for those who don't know that. Um, and Bakugo makes fun of Deku also wanting to go to My Hero Academia. Now, he probably could not succeed in the Heroes course without a power, but he might be able to do okay in one of the other courses, because they have courses we find out later for people who are going to manage heroes, people who build gadgets, all kinds of other things. Uh, support roles mm -hmm. for heroes. Although, clearly, Deku wants to be a superhero. After we leave the school, we find this creature, this like slime creature, running away from a crime. It's another villain with a power that lets him absorb people. He's running away, and as he hits a crowd and there are civilians there, he ends up kidnapping Deku. Uh, not Deku, sorry, uh, Bakugo. Mm -hmm. And there's nobody around to save him. The heroes are other places. Uh... But Deku rushes forward to save him. Now, I'm skipping forward a little bit because there's a bunch of discussion that Midoriya has with All Might, but it's not critical to this. We don't need to go panel by panel here. But when Deku rushes forward, despite the fact that he's powerless, to try to save Bakugo, even though he has no hope, because there are no heroes around, he does something that defines a lot of true heroes that he acts without thinking, and he acts selflessly. Mm -hmm. This act is what inspires All Might to share a secret with Deku and tell Deku that actually All Might was also born without a quirk. But the original holder of the quirk had the ability to pass down his quirk to others. And that All Might who is now older and has been severely injured, has chosen Deku to inherit the power. And this means that Deku is now set to inherit, essentially, the power of Superman. <laughs> I mean, of being the single most powerful hero in the world. But that's not going to be easy. And in the final panel, we get this text. I forgot to mention this, but this is the story of how I became a great hero. So they're putting this out there. Deku succeeds. So this isn't about whether or not he becomes a hero. It's about what happens. The journey. Now, 
And it's not necessarily happily ever after. At the end of a recent storyline, towards the end of it, I and a lot of other people speculated that Deku might die. That this was his deathbed story? Yes. Jesus. But if he had died in the conclusion of that arc, he would have died as the greatest hero in the world. Oh, wow. So, I mean, that's how brutal the story is at times. We're not guaranteed a happy ending, and there are rough points for people along the way. Mm -hmm. And Deku has to constantly push himself. And the allies and friends he makes have to push themselves. This is... It's an emotionally gripping story at times, and a lot of people definitely have fan-favorite characters. But one of the interesting things is, even though we met Bakugo in here, who's going to be a long-running character, we don't meet anybody else from My Hero Academia. We don't even see the school that the story is named after. We get his origin story. We get All Might, we get Deku, and we get Bakugo. That's it. But we get to learn relationships between them. We get to see developed scenes of a that are going to come into play over and over again. Bakugo's helplessness at that monster. All Might's failure to be there when the monster reappeared, because he'd fought it earlier in the issue. Um, Deku's rushing. All these tie into emotional uh, beats in the story that come up later, repeatedly. Not constantly spaced out, but enough to make you go, oh, when it happens. Mm -hmm. And so this is the triad that centers it. This is the triad that gives emotional weight for the first several arcs. And, and really for the whole series, even though All Might eventually steps out of the series to a degree. Mm -hmm. Bakugo, All Might, uh, and Deku. And Deku and Bakugo's common admiration of All Might and desire to surpass him, to match him, surpass him, become the inheritor of the mantle of the greatest hero in the world. Mm -hmm. And it works, and it works well. Now let's compare that to the Legion of Super Putzes. <laughs> now, Brian Michael Bendis did not start with superhero comics. He originally started with crime and noir comics um, and did some really good stuff. His name really exploded, though, when he was at Marvel, and he launched Ultimate Spider-Man, which I initially thought was a stupid idea, and it won me over very quickly. W when Bendis is writing well, he's very, very good. And he did a lot of great writing at Marvel. Now, I'm not a big fan of the whole, you know, crossover universe tying together, you must buy every comic in existence to read at events. Um, but he did write some of the best ones at Marvel for the better part of 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and ones that they're using for the movies to this day. And of course, arguably, they used Ultimate Spider-Man as the basis of the current Spider-Man line. Mm -hmm. So he came over to DC as an exclusive uh, writer. And DC hyped it up. I mean, DC was absolutely shameless and unreserved for their hype of having Brian Michael Bendis at DC. He took over Legion. He took over Superman. He talked about his love for these titles. Um, a lot of people were really hyped. And, I mean, it, it was crazy how... I mean, first of all, nobody could have probably lived up to the hype that DC gave him. Uh, which was probably a mistake to begin with. Um, but then they continued to act like, well, I mean, they continued to act like he had blackmail material on them, frankly. So, Ghost, Ghost of Brian Michael Bendis, did you in fact have photos of DC executives in South Asian love hotels? <laughs> wow. That was a shot in the dark on my part. Um... So, very specific. I oh, well, I mean, I didn't ask about others. Were there some in Czechoslovakia too? <laughs> wow, they traveled. Okay. <laughs> this this is family education. I'm not going to ask about the Czechoslovakian stuff. Um, <laughs> family education. Yeah, sure. So, Legion of Superheroes 
Um, it comes out with its first issue. And, well, first of all, I have to say that before the first issue came out, they put out a two-issue limited series called Millennium Legion of Superheroes with nobody from the Legion of Superheroes in it. Purely to explain what happened in the thousand of years before the 21st century and 31st century, all none of which you could understand at all unless you already had a deep knowledge of DC Comics history. But we're going to be here forever if we get into that. Which is not a good thing for new readers. No, it's awful. It's awful. Just awful. So they throw on this first issue. And let me go ahead and say, the Legion of Superheroes, for those who aren't familiar with it, first appeared back in Adventure Comics with Superboy. Um, I want to say in the late 50s. I, I don't recall clearly off the top of my head. But... It was three characters, Saturn Girl, Cosmic Boy, Lightning Lad. They had formed a club, the Legion of Superheroes, after saving uh, wealthy industrialists, and then he decided to fund them. They used time travel to come back in time and recruit Superboy, who was their inspiration for the Legion of Superheroes. Um, that was, of course, Clark Kent. And this recasting, remember, Bendis was also writing Superman. It wasn't super boy who became Superman, Clark Kent, that inspired it, but instead, uh, Jonathan Kent, who we talked about there, some people are saying Jonathan Kent is going to be gay, um, Jonathan Kent inspired the creation of the United Federation of Planets, and that led to the Legion of Superheroes. So they come back in time to recruit that Superboy, Jonathan Kent. By the way, one of the storylines that upset people was his romantic relationship with Saturn Girl, which isn't very gay. Maybe bi, but not gay. Uh, maybe he was just confused. I don't know. I'm just confused. I'm still not convinced they're going to make him gay, but uh, and I'm still not convinced that they're going to try to make him the new Superman and uh, uh, push out Clark Kent. Yeah, I just can't see that. So, on our first issue... He's put front and center, and then we have tons of characters in the background. And, you know, we can play the game of Wildfire, Shadow Last, Brainiac 5, Chameleon Kid, Saturn Girl, um, Ultra Boy, uh, Star Boy, Princess Projectra. Who the fuck is that? Um, you can name Dawn almost Star. everyone. Oh, easily, yeah. And, and, and I can debate about the Legion. Okay, so so the Legion of Superheroes was introduced, as I explained, and it was very kitschy. And by the way, continuity was bad. If you go back and read the original Legion of Superheroes issues, their continuity was awful. But it was in Superman titles in general, comics in general, really. Um, but over the years, Legion just, it grabbed people. And it became popular, it became a recurring feature, and it had some actually surprisingly powerful storylines. It featured a major character's death at a time when characters did not die. Wow. And then they used a kind of gimmick to bring him back, but it required the sacrifice of a minor character. And that actually resonated with people. And by the time you got to the 70s, the Legion was running its own titles and had incredible writers and artists doing it. And over the years, Legion is become one of those titles especially from the 90s onward where it's had some good writing and some good titles but it's been rebooted over and over and over again they haven't seemed to quite know what to do with it and people love the legion of superheroes and they won't let it go but nobody seems to be quite sure what to really do with it so when brian michael bendis came along and said that he he loved the legion and he was going to make this a legion people could love a lot of people were really excited, including myself. Um, and one of the reasons we were excited was we've talked about the mythology of comics, how comics are retelling mythology. And one of the things that he did extraordinarily well with Ultimate Spider-Man was he took what was iconic about Spider-Man and then recast it into a modern story and made a great Spider-Man stories. And so we were anticipating him doing that with Legion. But I would argue that he did not. So 
but uh, let me back up and say, so over those years of Legion running, there were times when the group had like 50 members. And, and, and the cast would change. So there have probably been hundreds of members of the Legion over the years. Sounds like a J-pop band. It is. It's like AKB was given superpowers. Oh, dear Lord. And a lot of great stories in there. So this is our very first page of the reboot of Legion of Superheroes. The Bloodhaven sewer system. Big fancy planes are flying through some sort of... It, it honestly, I know it's supposed to be a tunnel, but it looks like a boom tube because of all these weird green lines and graphics added. Wait, it's not meant to be a tube? It, it, well, I mean a tunnel, a tube, but I'm saying it looks like an energy opening in space. And it's not. It's supposed to just be a tunnel. So why they added all these energy direction lines, I don't know. It's very confusing. And, in fact, on the page below, you see the tunnels coming out and emptying into some sort of waterway, uh, maybe river system, where they're just normal physical tunnels. And in a move that I guess they thought was cute, this is the Bloodhaven sewer system. The openings are surrounded by graphics of bats. Bloodhaven is a city near Gotham. The artist thought it was cute. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Right. Um, and there's somebody flying in pursuit of this ship flying through there. The ship flies out, smashes into the crowd, hops up, hits a building, and some. And we're told this is Planet Gotham. Something's going on with that ship. Now they're flying crazy. And we see this figure that we don't see very well. They seem to have a cape or maybe a loose jacket of some kind, but we don't really get a good look at them. Um, they go after the ship. The ship, somebody in the ship attacks them. Uh, we still don't get a good look at them. For those who know Legion, by the third page, we can see enough of the symbol to figure out that's probably Ultra Boy. Um, and then he says... Uh, hero, age of hero stuff. Uh, everyone step back. There's nothing to be. Somebody in the crowd says, uh, I think he's going for it. Name, meaning a weapon that somebody crawling out of the wreckage is getting. And Ultra Boy runs back. Really? Again? Didn't work the first time. Didn't work the first five times either, you whore-ass trash. And then they speak in some alien language. And Ultra Boy picks up this box that has all kinds of glowing parts on it and says, It is. It's real. Now, no, we haven't been told who he is. We haven't been told that this is Ultra Boy. We've had no explanation of the world. We don't have anything about him other than he flies after people that, for all we know at this point, could be innocent civilians. I mean, this guy could be taking food to children, for all we know. And this is a thug beating him up. Yeah, for all we know, this is the reveal of the villain. Right, unlike My Hero Academia, where we see a background scene and the heroic characters immediately established, and we immediately know something about that there are people with powers. He goes to open this thing up, and... Somebody steals it from him, teleports away, they have a fight, and then some other people show up. And this bald guy says, we dare, meaning we dare fight you. Us. And this guy in a suit says, don't do a thing, Val. And the bald guy again says, I am the Karate Kid. And you are. And so what we're getting immediately is, these guys are pompous. They're arrogant. They're, you know, in your face. And there's also a guy sort of flying with this space and stars motif on his body. Um, by the way, a lot of people pointed out, and this immediately occurred to me, um, this guy's wearing a hairstyle associated with some martial arts traditions and Buddhist traditions in Japan, and he's calling himself the Karate Kid, which is Japanese. Not the most culturally sensitive thing. Um, Not all Asian cultures are the same. Right. Now, there was a, a Val, a Val armor, 
who was the Karate Kid in the original comics. He was very white. And the writers back in the original uh, comics, when they realized kind of what they had done, uh, wrote in that he ha was of mixed white and Japanese ancestry. Great save. Well, I mean, they were trying. Yeah, at, at least they weren't trying to completely whitewash yeah. him. So the other characters here are Starboy and Wildfire. Um, they say they're from the Legion of Superheroes. There's another quick fight scene. We're well into the book right now as they hold the Trident of Aquaman, the mighty Arthur Curry from the Legion from the Age of Heroes. And other than their names, and I don't think they've even named Starboy, we know nothing about them. And we know nothing about the Legion. We don't know who's the bad guy and who's the good guy here. We're thrown into a big plot and the characters aren't terribly likable yet. I mean, one of them kind of comes off as an ass and the other three is completely neutral. So now we get to a follow-up scene. Now to understand this scene, you had to be reading Superman. Because otherwise you're like, why is Superboy in the 31st century? But all this happened in Superman. And Saturn Girl is giving him a little bit of a rundown. Now, here is one of my huge pet peeves. They have a hollow presentation for him to learn about the 31st century, and he keeps ignoring it. And over the first few issues, he continues to blow it off and ignore it. And Brian Michael Bendis is essentially making fun of the readers because he thinks he's being really clever by saying, aha, see, I had this mechanic for keeping the reader aware of what's going on because I have this character not from that time and he can learn about it and you can learn about it at the same time, which is a common trick. People do this with fish out of water scenarios all the time, but I'm gonna mix it up by having him ignore it and not learn it. So he's confused and the reader will be too. It's almost like that's a common trope for a reason. Right. It's almost like it's a good writing tool. And the first time he does it, maybe even two times, it's kind of amusing. But as it goes on and on and on, it's just annoying. And this character, uh, Jonathan Kent, who's being built up as a worthy successor to Clark Kent as Superman, comes across as an idiot and annoying as a result. So we still have no explanation. Now, as we get a little bit further on, he gets introduced to the Legion. Uh, we're told that he there are these little floating AR things that project names and basic information about people um, so that he can know who all these different members of the Legion are. They're often covered up in such a way that they're not useful for the reader either. I was about I, to say, it's covered up. I can't read it. Right. And the angle of them is weird. And, I mean, here we can see... And there is a little bit of fun here as longtime Legion readers get to try to guess who certain people are. Uh, I mean, here, from the color of the skin and the hair, this is clearly Shadow Lass. This, from the costume, is Cosmic Boy. Now, Cosmic Boy here is represented as very dark-skinned. It's not clear to me if he's meant to be of African heritage or maybe more like South American Indian or Haitian or, I mean, but a, a dark-skinned ethnic group mm -hmm. or, or, or phenotypical group. Uh, and some people were really bothered by this. I wasn't, uh, I mean, the Legion could have always used more diversity anyway. And to me, race uh, was not an iconic part of Cosmic Boy, so I didn't care. In my opinion, if it's not iconic, it can be whatever race it Right. The, the artist wants. Right. Um, and then further, so that's Cosmic Boy. He could also be Latino. And the more I look at him, the more I think they intended for Latino. And then you come to Lightning Lad over here. And Lightning Lad is definitely of a more African-descended race. Either African itself, uh, maybe West Indies, maybe some of the other places where the African diaspora settled people. Um, but again, same thing as with Cosmic Boy. I never felt that Lightning Lad's race was critical. So 
we have two of the three founding members because the other founding member is Imra, Saturn girl over here, and she's still a Caucasian female. So we have two of the three founding members with their race altered. Who can I don't care. Some people lost their shit over this. Those people need to get over it. How dare they not be white? Right. Uh, other characters here, that's clearly Block. Based on the color of her skin, I'm guessing that's Shrinking Violet. That's definitely uh, Chameleon Kid. That's probably Bouncing Boy. Uh, we see this is Triplicate Girl. I'm betting the blue hair there is the third one because they have the three symbol. Uh, at one point in the original comics, one of them died and she became Duo Damsel. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can get into Geekery here. Uh, they have a future version of Dr. Fate. That's certainly new from the outfit that's clearly Colossal uh, Boy. I'm not sure who that's intended to be. Maybe Timberwolf. This uh, monstrosity and abomination of all that's holy is Dawnstar. Um, uh, they got rid of her 70s character design, and for that alone, Brian Michael Bendis uh, can rot forever in the deepest pits of hell. Brian Michael Bendis, have you in fact had to go for to hell for this? I knew it. So, um, so we're just thrown with all these new characters with having no clue who anyone is. Right, and it's a massive, overwhelming scene. Now, a scene or two to emphasize how many characters there are can be interesting. But this continues panel after panel after panel after panel after panel. And it's it's visually overwhelming on the reader as well. And we continue to just have half explanations thrown at us with no character history, no character development. And in the final page, as they're standing around in a big group, they're getting attacked and then some cryptic comments made at the United Planets homeworld. What's the United Planets homeworld? That's not really explained either. They don't much explain the United Planets. So, now a lot of stuff doesn't have to be explained to My Hero Academia because it's a near future. We know that we can use what's happening to Nat right now as a baseline. And then we have fundamentals of quirks explained to us. We are limited to three characters and we get a good sense of them. Here, we have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. I'm going to count the three uh, triplicate girls. 1, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. I, I might have miscounted, but roughly 25 characters. Um, and we don't even know all their names. We don't have senses of characters. We, I, it, it, it's a mess. It's a mess. And I read all 12 issues of this, and it did not get better. Now, they did explain more eventually, but in a way that was frustrating. So, I didn't feel like I was grounded in this series. I was annoyed by it. And your first issue has to make people want to click to that second and third and fourth and fifth. And, and I'm, a, I'm a Legion fan. I really like Legion. I, I have several rings that have been produced by DC Comics as promotions for Legion over the years. Legion flight rings. They don't actually let me fly, unfortunately. Um, that I keep in a box with, you know, other stuff. I mean, I, I, I was excited about this. Mm -hmm. When people complained about a future Dr. Fade and a gold lantern, I was like, no, no, that's cool. I mean, bring in new characters that, you know, could be from the future. When people complained about changing races, I said, no. When people said, that's not the traditional block design, I said, well, you know, you got to try out some new things. When they showed the new Dawnstar, I agreed 100%. Um, <laughs> but, okay, here's the problem with Dawnstar. So, Dawnstar in the 1970s was presented in a, you could argue, uh, kind of ridiculous Indian outfit, American Indian outfit. And you could argue it's ridiculous that somebody with giant feathered wings lets them fly through space. It's superhero stuff, though. Yeah. Over time, she was developed into a really strong character. Mm -hmm. And she was sexy, but not sexualized. Which is an important difference. And, and you could argue there were way more female characters more heavily sexualized than she was. Mm -hmm. In fact, her primary relationship was with a man who was traumatically turned into sentient energy and couldn't leave his suit. So it was by definition platonic, though mm -hmm. romantic. Uh, or non-sexual, though romantic. 
And the new outfit is, I don't think, any less cheesy. Maybe they consulted, you know, people who know better about the topics than I do and made a more authentic outfit for her. I think that's very possible. Uh, but it, her original outfit was iconic. Giving her energy wings is lame. You don't... The, no, when you have characters who are telepaths and living stone and sentient energy and shapeshifters who can ignore mass restrictions, you know, reality is not your primary concern here. Mm -hmm. Um, so... Yeah. Th this was the attempt to introduce the Legion to a new generation of readers. And they made the argument that so many of the changes they made from classic Legion were to make it accessible to new readers. And yet the writing wasn't welcoming even a little bit. No, not at all. Pretty much to understand what's going on, you've had to be reading Le Legion for years. Right. To have any hope of any comprehension. And I, and I get the idea of that opening fight scene uh, of being in media res, you know, jumping straight into the action, which My Hero Academia kind of did with the fight scene with the kids, but it, it seemed like a flashback. It really wasn't. This did it. And that's okay. But then they needed to do something. They should have started with just a few characters. They should have given us something to empathize with those characters. We should have learned something about them, seen interactions between them, so we had some investment in those characters. Because on episode, because on uh, volume one of My Hair Academia, you automatically like the characters. You automatically f kind of like Deku and want him to succeed. Because there's a core story they sell immediately from the first issue, which is Bakugo's an antagonist to Deku. Mm -hmm. Deku is the underdog. And he's set to inherit the power of the greatest superhero in the world and has to live up to that. And you want to root for him. You want right. to see him succeed. We have no reason to root for anybody here. It's a mess. We don't care about who people are. And there's no central idea being sold to us. We don't even know who the people trying to get the trident back are and why. And what is the trident? And why is it important? And... It would be okay if some of this was a cliffhanger into the next episode issue to draw us through, but this whole but a good cliffhanger gives you a point to move on from, a point that makes you want to turn the page that doesn't exist yet, so you buy the next issue. This is just incomplete scenes. This feels like a rough draft. They should have had if they wanted to introduce the idea of this big group, they should have had this first issue with, say, three characters. Mm -hmm. And those three should have been dealing with the problem. They should have had interactions so that we see them. Preferably, because of the iconic nature of Legion, those three should have been Saturn Girl, Cosmic Boy, and Lightning Lad. The founding of the Legion. Um, and then, you know, maybe somewhere towards the end... The big bads attack. We know more about them. And they say, all right, summon the rest of the Legion. And then we can have the panels with these ridiculous amount of characters. And that can lead us into the next issue. And I know that he had a big motivation to bring Superboy in immediately, but I wouldn't have. I would have waited till issue three or four. Or if you did bring him in right away, maybe make it those four characters instead of three. But, but not 25. And for dear God, give us some touchstone with those characters so that we like them. And maybe don't tell us their names that late in. Right. Maybe give us it earlier. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So this is why a Western superhero comic made for kids doesn't work. And part of it is an, an over-reliance on backlog, on needing to know a bunch of history, on something that was a reboot to make accessible, to have any clue of what's going on, you still needed to know 70 years of comic book history. This wasn't made for new readers. This was made for the people who've been reading it since they were a kid. Right. Um, so, Brian Michael Bendis, 
Do you have any regrets with doing Legion? No. Is it because the check cleared? Yes, okay. That explains it. Um, you know, joking aside, I think Brian Michael Bendis probably does love Legion. I think he was trying to make something exciting. I think something failed where there needed to be a check along the way where somebody said to him, Brian, you're a great writer. You have good ideas, but this is too much, too fast. We need to pull back. He put all his excitement into one issue instead of spreading it out. I think there's passion for Legion here from Brian. I don't think it works, though. Time to reboot again. <laughs> oh, God, trust me, they will. All right, um, so midweek, we're going to have the time travel episode appropriate for Legion. Lots of time travel in Legion. Um, and, yeah, Brian, I'm sorry, but you lost track of what's iconic about Legion. I I including the relationship between Lightning Lad and Saturn Girl, which is iconic part of Legion history. Um, it added gravity to Lightning Lad's death and then resurrection. And then the story with Darkseid and the, the revelation about what happened to their missing child that they didn't even know existed because Darkseid stole him from the womb. What the fuck? Yeah, and these are classic powerful stories that were literally undermined in the initial issues. Did we even meet Lightning Lad? Not really. He was standing off to the side in the panel. That's not meeting a character. No, uh, no. That now Brian Michael Bendis understood this when he took Green Goblin and put him front and center in Ultimate Spider-Man, but he lost understanding iconic elements in this. I think he wanted to reboot it and he wanted to reimagine it, and I think he he was passionate about it, but again, just didn't work. I think he wanted to make the Legion he wanted, not make it for new readers. And so. What happens is it becomes a storyteller's version of a myth that people won't remember. Mm. Meanwhile, My Hero Academia founds a whole new mythology. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how it is, folks. So what are we going to do next week? I don't have a course planned for next week yet. Ooh. Now, I've thought about going back and doing a history lesson again. I did 100 years. I thought about doing a deep dive on another topic again. Anything uh, you're particularly interested in, Rowan? No, not really. Not really? The 100 years I'm still mentally processing. You're still processing it? Well, we'll, yeah. we'll give you a little something more to process. Um, I tell you what. I, 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 I have an idea. Ooh, ideas. That's either going to be really good or really scary. Well, probably both. Probably both. What we're going to do is we are going to look at the history of the Black Panther. Ooh, Black Panther. One of my favorite characters. Um, I have in the past done very deep dives into the Black Panther for students. And so we're going to do a complete comprehensive history of the Black Panther. It may take a couple of course sessions. I'm okay with that. Okay. All right. Well, we will see everyone next week. And this time, I will remember to save. Bye. <laughs>